Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, on the Leaders Council podcast, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership, and I'm therefore delighted to say we're joined on today's programme by Patricia Seabright. Patricia, is a public speaker, author, sales expert and owner of Archimedes Consulting, a successful consulting and training business working with clients ranging from global corporations to local startups. And today, diversity and inclusion are on the discussion agenda. Uh, Patricia, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, My pleasure, Scott. Uh, It's delightful to be here and, uh, yeah, talk about these important topics around leadership. It's critical, isn't it? And um, we can go back to sort of late 2020 um, when HR magazine reported that there are still too few women in senior leadership positions to drive long-term change in terms of diversity. And this comes despite voluntary targets having boosted gender diversity on sort of UK corporate boards. And the annual female FTSE board report found that a lack of representation at the top of businesses could actually be impacting the number of women that are in the executive pipeline. So what, in your view, Patricia, needs to be done to firstly increase female representation in senior positions? Um, Gosh, where does one start on that topic? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I guess at first you've got to divide it uh, very distinctly into what should organisations do. Um, and or then also look at what individual women should do, because of course the answer does, doesn't lie wholly in each each one. Right, organisations mm. um, should be doing more, um, but individual women can do things to help themselves as well. So, I mean, on the organisational front, I think a lot of this is around awareness. Um, when I wrote my book, she said about women being heard. I think one of the key things that struck me and that led me to write it in the first place is that many people in many organizations seem to think the problem's over, seems to think that the battle for gender balance and gender diversity is over. You know, there's legislation in place. Um, You do see women prime ministers and women um, CEOs and board members. And so people tend to think job done. Well, the reality, of course, is that, yes, there are some very successful um, women, but they are outliers. Uh, it's still not the norm. We're still a long way from gender balance. And I think um, organizations can start by being aware of that um, and start to think about, well, how, you know, have proactive strategies about how do we make our environment and our culture, critically culture, more inclusive? Um, and what do we need to do to achieve that? And of course, you know, the, the, there's a and a huge array of things that you can think about. But I think the, the most important thing is awareness and focus on what needs to be done in any given organization to create that balance. 
I think what a lot of organizations seem to have done is have that sort of tick box exercise of having a certain number of women on their executive boards and think that solved the problem, but it hasn't, has it? Because even though these women are there, they're not necessarily having their voices heard and being involved in decision-making processes. And indeed, you yourself, Patricia, raised in CEO today that research says men speak for 75% of the time in decision-making groups and women are interrupted 50% of the time. And added to that, 69% of speakers at worldwide sort of business conferences are men. So it's apparent that we've still got a very long way to go when it comes to diversity still. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, the fact that we have some women that you can point to and go, well, look, we've had two female prime ministers and we've got, you know, X number of women on boards, etc. And um, the problem with that is that, that, that I think there's been some research that suggests that until you get at least 30% of women on any given board or committee or organisation, it doesn't start to really change the attitudes and culture of an organization doesn't really help to create gender balance that much yes of course it helps a bit um but actually you need a certain amount of critical mass before you really start creating meaningful change so i think that's one of the things that organizations as you say they've been quick to tick a box and go oh yes look we have a woman um and that's not enough that's not enough that's um that is tokenism so, uh, mm. first of all, I think organizations need to, to look themselves in the mirror and go, right, is this real or are we just ticking a box? Um, I think, and, and to the point about women being heard, then yes, you know, the men and women's communication styles just are different. And, and you know, some of that is not intentional, but the fact that women get interrupted um, at least 50% of the time that they speak and that men do tend to dominate in decision-making groups is, is not necessarily always intentional to try and shut women up, but it does have that effect. Because the, the, the problem is as well, men are used to being assertive and possibly even aggressive in the way they communicate, and that's fine. That's, um, that's a bold, forceful man is a great thing. A bold, forceful woman is pushy and shrill and hysterical. Um, and, and so women, when men dominate conversations, it's very hard for women to challenge that and break into that without then them having all these negative epithets laid at their feet. So it, it, it is a challenge. And you know, again, organizationally, the men in an organization, there's a lot of talk about allyship. If men in the organization are perhaps more aware of, of the impact of, of their more vociferous uh, communication styles, and then they can help with that. Equally, women can, part of the purpose of my book was, was particularly to help women be aware of some of these challenges and devise their own strategies for how to either either challenge these things or to navigate around them. And again, the choice of each individual woman in her own circumstance to decide which is best at any given moment to, to challenge or to navigate. Do you think that cultural norms sort of have a role to play in how women are treated in executive positions? Because I suppose some sort of male board members may be expecting a woman to display sort of softer sort of emotions. But when they come across a an executive who is female and they're assertive, they're showing ambition, they're very sharp, they're very business minded, I think they can almost be kind of caught off guard by that, can't they? And that might be why they're sort of a little bit adverse, perhaps. 
Yeah, no, to- totally. It, it's a complete catch-22 situation for women in that, yeah, you know, if women display assertive, um, forceful behaviours, that's not what you might call culturally approved behaviours. Don't expect women to be forceful. And if we if we experience them as such, often men and actually, interestingly, quite a few women um, dislike that behaviour in women because it's not the norm. It's not the culturally accepted thing. And what, what you have to um, understand as well is that as, as fast as the world is changing and, um, you know, we're technological advancements and we're moving forward at a, a fantastic rate, actually our culture and our behavior and our expectations moves much, much slower. And so, you know, for all that the world changes, our, our cultural expectations of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, how those two interact, that changes at quite a glacial pace. And that's, that's the issue. Um, and it's only by having these kinds of debates and going, well, actually, you know, why do we think that a forceful woman is, is not so acceptable? And in fact, actually, when you challenge people with that, sometimes they go, well, I don't have a problem with that. But actually, in the moment, in the behavior, they, they will. They'll have a negative emotional reaction to that. But I think raising the awareness of what's going on and, and where these old, old paradigms of, you know, how women should behave, what is feminine behavior, what is accepted behavior for anybody, um, we have to challenge those. We have to think about those and we have to start making shifts. Uh, because if we don't, mm. the organic pace of change will mean that we're still talking about gender diversity in another hundred years. I think that's exactly right. I think we shouldn't sort of be sucked into accepting that it's a social norm. It's always going to be the case that women will be judged by different standards than men. We have to sort of push against that. And I think education is one way. Debate is another way. Um, but what else do you think we can actually do to sort of really challenge that norm? Well, again, I, I'm a great believer in the fact that, that being aware of, of the fact that, that the work here is not done, <laughs> um, that's a good start for both organisations and individuals. Um, you know, I, I've worked uh, in, in business for 30 years and I've worked with many very amazing women, but I've found a, a lot of them are extraordinary at what they do but don't like to talk about it. Um, now, part of that is because we're socialised not to be you know, braggy or pushy or forward or, or things like that. Um, but but we equally, society judges people by what it sees of them in public domains. So that might be um, in meetings, that might be doing presentations or speeches or whatever. And so women's reticence to to um, speak and be heard is, is part of the problem. So, so to a certain extent, women can... Um, change that. That is something that is within their span of control and something that I think all women need to focus on is is how well they are making their voice heard and how well they're speaking and how well they are being heard when they speak. And I hope you don't mind me asking this, uh, Patricia, but um, have you sort of experienced personally any of these issues that we've talked about yourself and found yourself having to really push at those boundaries and smash glass ceilings to sort of make yourself heard in executive settings? Um, well, yes, I have. But I think, you know, part of the reason I feel so passionate about this is I think I've probably got it wrong. 
Um, yeah, I, I spent um, 16 or so years in the corporate world working in sales leadership positions for Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola and uh, other leading consumer goods companies. Um, and I ended up leaving the corporate world to start my own consultancy. And partly I thought at the time that it, this was just because I wasn't a very good corporate citizen, you know, not very good at being told what to do. Um but in reality, I look back on that now and I realize what I was, particularly in sales, you know, I was um, quite often one of very few women. And, and yes, I was, I was competitive and I was assertive and that was perceived as aggressive. And that, you know, that, that was why I didn't feel like I quite fitted because I was, I was pushing against these boundaries. I didn't realize what boundaries I was pushing against because I think I made the mistake of thinking job done. Mm. Um, because, yeah, I, I started work in the late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, you felt like, you know, there the, the were plenty of women role models. There was prime ministers and people, you know, doing amazing things. Um, and, and, and so you thought there wasn't a problem, but there was. And, I, and I've only really realized, and it's the, the, here's the key thing, right? It's not overt. You know, if you look back at the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, when there were equal pay battles, for example, where you know the, the women in Dagenham weren't getting paid as much as exactly for the almost identical work as the men, that was obvious. That was kind of clear. Now, things are much, much more subtle, and so you don't realize some of the unconscious bias that you're facing. Um, I certainly didn't. I thought it was all okay. And my sense of sort of swimming upstream a little bit was I didn't realize why. I thought it was about me. It wasn't actually. It was about me as a female operating in a largely male environment and not navigating it very well. So there you go. There's my, uh, <laughs> my personal <laughs> experience. But that's why it's led me to be um, so zealous, I guess, about making women aware of some of the issues they still face um, and helping them think about how they how they deal with that as individuals, as well as talking to organizations about what they can do to help capitalize on 50% of the world's talent. That's exactly it. And we've had a significant period, haven't we, of self-reflection during the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, we're still in that pandemic as we have this discussion. And um, we've seen so many deep-rooted social inequalities exposed and thrust into the limelight of the national discussion in the UK over the last few months. So could we use this as a watershed moment to address workplace diversity and sexism to help pave the way for women to be seen as equals in the corporate world and indeed society at large? Well, I, I think you're right. It is an inflection point, um, but I think it could go either way. So. The, on, on the one hand, there's been a huge amount of research that has suggested that the pandemic has affected women particularly adversely. Um, so, you know, given that women still do globally still do sort of 70 to 80 percent of all the domestic work, the childcare, the elder care, the community work, etc. Um, during the pandemic, that has been true, and so. You know, the number of women withdrawing from the workforce or cutting back um, their careers or their hours or both uh, has been huge. And that's been really worrying um, for the cause of, of women moving forward mm. and, and achieving gender balance. On the other hand, there is also some signs that there's some positivity. I, I'm doing some work with the um, 
Institute for Sales Professionals. Um, and we, we recently did this survey with saleswomen and we were talking about what, whether the need to travel, for example, uh, adversely affected their careers because obviously if you have childcare responsibilities, the need to travel isn't always easy to manage. Um, and the, the vast majority of them, something like 70%, said actually the pandemic had made their lives easier because the increase of working from home um, and the acceptance of working from home and more flexibility that that affords has actually helped women in, in just you know, manage their domestic burdens more. So, you know, in some respects, that could be transformational for a world in which more flexible working helps women. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, I think that there needs to be a greater balance. As Cheryl Sandberg puts it, your partner needs to be a real partner. Mm. <laughs> um, and this thing where women are still responsible for a, for a house and family needs to change. Um, but even while that remains, if, if the workplace becomes more flexible, then it could be a, a major move to um, be positive for women. So I think, you know, the jury's out. Um, and it remains to be seen whether this inflection point uh, works well or badly for women. Exactly right. Um, it is um, a real sort of crossroads, isn't it, in the uh, the battle for gender uh, equality, as it were. And um, just for those as well, Patricia, who may not have actually read the article that you put together for CEO today, um, just for those women that may be tuning into this who are working women or have aspirations to become business women themselves, um, what are sort of the key words of advice that you'd give them to sort of help them succeed and really be heard in business? Um, well, I, th- I think the first one is recognise the importance of being heard. So I think many women uh, and many of the women I interviewed for my book, many of the women that I've known and worked with over, over 30 years, um, a lot of women tend to get things done quietly behind closed doors out of the limelight. Um, but recognise that we are a society and a world where actually people tend to judge your whole professional competence by what they see of you in public forums, in meetings, in presentations, in speeches, etc. And if you're, you know, if you feel like, well, for me to speak in this meeting, uh, all these men are being very assertive and aggressive and noisy. And for me to try and insert myself in this meeting, you know, I'm going to get called pushy if I try and do it. I, do you know what? I'm just going to take it offline. I'll go and speak to somebody quietly one-on-one later. And you can be, you can achieve things that way, but what you don't do is build your career, your reputation, your credibility. Um, people, people will assess your whole professional credibility about what they see of you in meetings and presentations. Now, if you accept that, then, then my best advice to women is make sure you are visible and you are heard. Speak up in those meetings. Always speak in meetings. Um, be prepared to. Always volunteer. When somebody says, oh, we need somebody to speak at the company kickoff or this, this customer event or whatever, speak, volunteer. You might not want to. It might terrify you, but you need to do it. And get yourself good at doing it. It's just a skill. It's just a learned skill. Mm. You know, you might feel you're instinctively good at it or instinctively bad at it. A lot of women feel they're instinctively bad at it because, you know, again, the 
we're on, you know, we get judged and criticised by how we look, not just what we say. We get much more of that. So there are many reasons why women have greater trepidation about speaking up in meetings and presentations. But speak up, you must. And if you're not comfortable with it, make it, uh, you know, a key skill to get comfortable with it. And there, are, there are dozens of ways you can do that, but, but it, it, recognize it as a key skill and embrace it and do something about it. It's exactly that, isn't it? It's like in leadership. We're not necessarily born as great leaders with all of the skills that we need. We have to sort of undergo experiences and we have to learn these skills and being able to sort of speak up, be comfortable speaking publicly, letting ourselves be heard. That's all part and parcel of that. Yeah, it totally is. And, you know, everybody has different styles, right? Sometimes when you talk about leadership or you talk about public speaking, for example, people will think, um, oh, well, you know, you've got to be a massive extrovert to do that. You've got to be super confident. You, you know, if you're not Michelle Obama or Barack Obama or you know, any of the other people we might think of as amazing speakers, if I'm not that outgoing extrovert person, then I just can't do it. That's wrong. Yeah, we can all find our own voice and our own style, but you have to work at it. <laughs> so many people say to me, it's like, oh, well, yeah, no, public speaking, I don't really like it, but, you know, it's okay. I, I went on a course, you know, 10 years ago for a day. <laughs> no, actually, this is a pivotal skill for leadership. It's a pivotal skill for women, particularly being heard, building their reputations, building their careers. And so, you know, don't underestimate it. Work at it. Build it. It's really, really important. It's absolutely critical, isn't it? And um, just before we wrap things up, Patricia, um, I would like to talk a little bit about Archimedes Consulting, your business, because you work with some absolutely fantastic clients ranging from global corporations to local startup businesses. And as we hopefully sort of enter the post-pandemic world now with the July 19th lifting of restrictions uh, what are some of your sort of priorities going to be in the immediate future as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind and indeed on that campaign front to help women in business um, what are some of the priorities going to be there as well yeah now i um, i'm on a bit of a mission to persuade businesses particularly that if they are serious about creating gender balance um, and and you know gaining all the benefits that you gain from a diverse workforce um, and I mean, you know, diverse in gender terms, but also in all other, all other terms as well. But, but to try and persuade uh, businesses that if they're serious about this, they actually need to put in place some, some specific training and support for women and possibly, you know, matching, mirroring support for men. But I think there is, it is, businesses need to recognize that things are different for men and women. They still are. I know we like to say we're all exactly the same. Actually, our experiences are different. And if you um, need to support women differently to it in order to help create that gender balance, um, that's what businesses need to do. So, you know, almost all businesses have leadership development programs. It's time that some element of those leadership development programs had something specific about women, women's experience, women speaking and being heard. And that's that's pretty much my mission going forward is to to uh, persuade organizations to to really operationalize their commitment to gender balance 
And it is a hugely important and just mission as well, Patricia. And I do wish you all the luck in the world and hopefully making that vision a reality going forward from here. And as we sort of start to understand more about what the post-pandemic world is starting to look like and we can see how this issue is being addressed, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up and have you back on the show with us just to see how far we've progressed in the time between our discussions. Because I must admit, it's been a real eye-opener for me welcoming you onto the programme today. And I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment. Well, great. Yeah, I hope, you know, that uh, I would love to come back and, and, and let's see, because like I said, the jury is out in terms of the mm. palace, this comes out. And, and it's in the hands of individual businesses and individual um, people as to how it pans out, right? It's not totally mm. random. So, you know, I hope people listening to this think about, yeah, okay, how do, how do we actually make this inflection point a good one? Um, so it would be really interesting to reflect on that in a year's time, for example. Certainly would be. Business leaders tuning in, it is in your hands. Uh, Patricia, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us and do as well continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. Indeed. Thanks very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure to be here. I was speaking today to Patricia Seabright, public speaker, author, sales expert and owner of Archimedes Consulting. And I hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Here at the Leaders' Council, we like to bring a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership forward onto the show. And therefore, we'll be joined by Lord Blunkett, Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary next on the programme. Um, Lord Blunkett will be discussing his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months with the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. Here is that interview now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think they'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into 
the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging and um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.